you know, we live in a sort of a, a pecuniary mind frame where even absolute bullshit that is expensive will be looked upon as valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, in fact, these things, these techniques, these sort of mind expanding or sort of internal meditations, whatever you want to call it, they're so easy. They're, they're completely free and they are completely revelatory. They can reveal a lot of things about yourself. And there's a whole world in there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and that's basically the source that everything comes from. Mm. Because I think I give that example in the book also, that the actual basis of empiricism, I mean, we're very used to, when we think science, we think about a method that's called the empirical method, which I sometimes call faith in statistics. It's almost like a religious adherence to statistics. However, all of that, you know, left brain, rational, clinical, analytical, the fundament of that, the foundation of that is speculation, wild, crazy, magical thinking speculation, where someone comes up with the idea, oh, what if, dot, dot, dot. You know, what if we mix and match this thing? And many times it will fail, but in some, some, you know, few cases it will be successful. And then you have a new scientific breakthrough proven by the method of empiricism, but it still comes from the mind going wild in creativity and tossing, you know, crazy ideas back and forth. So whichever facet we, we or whichever goggles we, we wear, in, in looking at these things, there's always magic there. There's always the source. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, author and magico-anthropologist Carl Abrahamson returns to Rebel Spirit Radio to discuss his latest book, Source Magic, the Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Among many other topics, Carl discusses occulture, magical anthropology, the need for an irrational rationality, and reverence for the individual in the face of systems of control. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Greeting Rebel Spirits. Before the interview with Carl Abrahamson, I wanted to let you know about a couple of things that are coming up. First, I will be presenting again during this year's Rebecoming the One Symposium. I was really excited to participate last year where I offered a presentation on witches, science, and the inquisition of nature. This year, my presentation is on the divine masculine and is titled The Call of the Diamond, Tending the Wild Genius. The presentation will go live on June 12th, 2023, uh, and I'll also be participating in a live panel discussion on the sacred masculine for the uh, symposium. In conjunction with this, I'll also be offering a paid workshop on Tending the Wild Genius. The workshop is scheduled for 9 a.m. Pacific on Friday, June 16th. For more information on the Rebecoming the One Symposium, go to livingtheonelight.teachable.com. I also wanted to let you know that the second episode of Cocktail Apocalypse will live stream at 11 a.m. Pacific on Saturday, May 13th. Stephanie Bidet and Jeremy Anderson will join me for another round of All Things Apocalypse. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Book of Revelation, and once again, 
Jeremy will offer a special drink recipe designed to get us all through the end times. So I hope you can join us uh, again. That's 11 a.m. Pacific on Saturday, May 13th. And now my conversation with Carl Abrahamson about his book, Source Magic. Carl Abrahamson is a writer, publisher, magico-anthropologist, and filmmaker. The author of A Culture, Resonances, and Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, as well as the editor and publisher of the Anthology of a Culture, The Fenris Wolf. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Carl, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here again. Yeah, I'm really excited to reconnect with you and have another, I'm sure, fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with you last year about your book, Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. And I've read kind of in bits and fits, your book, A Culture. I still have a right. bit to go on that, but I have read Source Magic mm -hmm. and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about some of these ideas. Wonderful. So I thought that there are a couple of different places to go. The book itself is a collection of essays. And I was looking for some themes. And I think there are some themes that kind of run through it. But I thought that the best place to begin is would be just with some basic definitions for anyone in the viewing or listening audience that is unfamiliar with some of them. I thought it would be really helpful right up the front to kind of dig into them. And so I wanted to ask what is meant by a culture? And then the follow-up question to that is what's a magico-anthropologist? Great. Thank you. They're the two big questions, but yeah. let's, let's deal with them one at a time. Yeah, for sure. Um, culture, uh, of course, is the, the merger of two great words, occult and culture. And that could be seen as, you know, something punny or, you know, witty wordplay. However, it's come to contain a lot of signal, a lot of significance in the sense that if we, you know, don't just look at it as words, but, you know, what they actually mean, the occult, lots of associations, historical stuff, dusty arcane, grimoires, magic, astrology, all of these things, witchcraft. But that has somewhat changed and quite quickly and fairly recently in the, let's call it the public arena or the general mind frame. And that has to do with a lot of different things. And I love to sort of study these things. But basically, what has happened is that many things have gone from the occult via a process that I call occulturation mm. into an occulture, mm. uh, meaning it has sort of moved from the dark, the hidden, underground, literally sort of under, under the surface, and then sprouted up like flowers in a way, you know, the seed are underground with good soil and good nutrition and sunlight and water, you know, things can start to grow. And that's basically what the occulturation process is. And over the surface, you know, when you hit the lawn, you know, things can sprout and bloom and seek the light and stuff like that. And that's basically where the occulture becomes visible so that people in general can see, okay, so yeah, this used to be like, you know, hocus pocus or dangerous or ostracized or even banned in, in some cultures. Whereas now it's out in the open having to do with 
couple of different major reasons. One is I'd say pop culture or culture mm-hmm. in general, sort of enmeshing itself in themes, occult themes, but also in you know occult philosophies, and and it's not just like the bling of cool things, you know, like in Harry Potter, and, yeah. but it's it's a, a all permeating. It's a lot more permeating and actually containing signal amidst the pop, amidst the sort of glitzy surface level thing. But still, that's one culture. And then you have the interest in, on a more serious level within academia, you know, the history of religion, history of ideas, anthropology, all of these fields that have been very, uh, I wouldn't say, maybe they've been too preoccupied with the phenomenon of religion in itself mm. or philosophy in itself. But now there's this vast field of studies called esotericism, you know, whether it's Western esotericism or, or, or whatever. So the presence in mainstream culture of what was previously occult and the presence within an academic culture, meaning they focus on studying these things historically, you know, sociologically, all kinds of facets possible. Those two also cross-fertilizing. You know, it just, it's like a snowball that creates an avalanche in a way. And it's all above ground. It's all highbrow. It's all in the mainstream. That's really what culture is. It's something that has previously been occult and that is now in the culture. So it becomes an occulture. Hmm. So if we go beyond the sort of the witty, punny aspects of it, it is actually a thing also that seems to be pretty massive and, and sort of very, very present. And I have many theories why that is. We, maybe we can save that, not for a rainy day, but just for yeah. later, <laughs> because it is a very interesting thing. And I do believe that there is a distinct reason why this is happening. Hmm. And then who is it that looks upon these things and thinks about them obsessively and almost like a pathological vocation, that would be me. <laughs> I'm sure there are others also. But that's basically what a magical anthropologist is. Someone who looks at the meaning and function of magic within human culture, whether it's historical culture or present-day culture, on an individual level, on a collective level. All these facets are you know, looked at from the magical anthropological perspective. The human being's relationship to magic, uh, quite simply. It's not quite simply. It's a complex issue with many, many layers, mm-hmm. uh, levels. And then, of course, you have the... You know, the weird, uh, I don't know, issue or, or, you know, what is magic? You have to define it before you can get into it. And there are many, many good definitions. Crowley, you know, he, he defined it as the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Tying it into the philosophy of will, you know, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, many, many giants in, in Western philosoph- philosophical traditions and history. You know, that means, and also LaVey had that with his, what he called the lesser magic, basically manipulative magic in, you know, material reality, tangible reality. And that's, that's beautiful. And that's one, one definition. But then, of course, you have the slightly diluted, but also meaningful definition where two people come out of a, of a cinema, for instance, and they say, wow, that film was really magical. Mm. You know, it's, it's an adjective that we use a lot in, in different contexts. And, and it basically means something that is out of the ordinary, something that is extra, something that is super, whatever it is, not really 
only fathomable with a rational mind frame, but it's something that hits you like on the emotional levels or, or uh, all levels. It really affects you. That becomes the magical in quotes. But then, of course, you know, there are other ones too having to do with the regional aspects or cultural aspects. And, you know, it could be many, many things. And I think if I remember myself correctly now, I think I defined it at some point that, that it is a mind frame that allows for all the definitions to pass through it, meaning it's an in, in integrating immersive definition that sort of says that everything that, you know, if you define it in one way or, or John Doe down the street defines it in his way, you know, it's all pretty valid because it's, it's a difficult thing to pinpoint exactly what it is. However, I still argue that whatever it is, it is central to our existence. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I actually have the quote here of one of your definitions of magic, which you had just said in terms of the mind frame. It's a magic is a perceptive, a perceptive mind frame, a multifaceted filtering of information and an expressed intuitive will churned through an optimized and quite often aestheticized understanding of the importance of the irrational emotional psyche. Great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well I done, came prepared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I usually don't have a lot of questions right now, but I pull out quotes and I yeah. have those. So it's right there at the ready, but yeah, no, I appreciate that because as soon as you mentioned magic, I was going to say, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I understand that it is so varied, you know, it's a multifaceted thing, right? Yeah. And it does though seem to be kind of primary in some ways and I know that what you do in the book, in the essays, is you kind of take it to a core, the source of it, yeah, which is the shamanic. Yeah. And so that was going to be another question for you, is how do you understand the shamanic and its relationship to magic? Mm -hmm. uh, what I present, and I don't think I'm unique in that at all, but I, I've given a lot of a lot of thought, and I think I, I stress it a lot, specifically in a few essays in this book and in the book as a totality, by calling it source magic, the origin of art, science, and culture, because I really mean that. And when when you say the shamanic, let's define that a little bit. I would say that it is an in inherent need in the human, not only the human mind, but in the human existence on an individual level and thereby also becoming on the collective level to transcend, mm. to transgress, to transcend. Okay, so what? Well, to transcend the rational mind, which cogitates, which deduces, which uses logic and uh, reason in a way to try to figure out, you know, what to do with all this data that's coming in through the senses. But that is only one way of dealing with the information. And then, of course, you have the what's called the epistemological question, from where do, does this you know, knowledge come? Well, we usually filter through our senses, right? Mm. And then we could systematize that and people can work together and you know, looking at different things. However, there are also other avenues of, uh, of knowledge. The main one, well, I wouldn't say the main one, I'm, I'm, that are, they're impartial. <laughs> but one great avenue or source is basically deeper aspects of your own mind. You know? So there is like, more like a psychological aspect. Whereas 
you could use the Freudian, you know, schematic division model that was popular in the early 20th century. But basically, if you have the rational on top, in a way, and that uses whatever it can to process data and information. But then you have sort of the things underneath that is equally uh, easy to access. Mm. We just need to transcend whatever is on top and sort of weighing us down. And you can look at it as maybe jumping and skipping over or staying below, you know, that doesn't matter. That's just schematic. But basically going deeper inside your own mind and see what exists there. Mm. And I usually draw the analogy that, you know, there is another sphere that is very, very related that is completely accepted by, by you know, science and by us all. And that's sleeping and dreaming, of course. Mm. That's also a highly irrational sphere filled with interesting information and input that also tangents, it also touches upon the emotional. It's not merely pure data, you know, but it's, it tells us stories, it gives us symbols, and, and we accept it as real because we spend a third of our lives in that m- mind frame, you know? Yeah. So it's a big deal. And I'm sure everybody is more or less frustrated about how little we remember in terms of dream recall. But I'm sure there's a reason for that also. However, in an awake and even, you know, completely sober state of mind, you can go into those layers and find stuff about yourself and others and about basically anything and then you come back, you know, come back to your rational mind frame with rem- remembrance of all these things. And then you write them down and you process say, what the hell is this? You know, what can I do with this? But that's a good, healthy first step because that's a validation of the fact that you have actually found something. And then the most crit- critical people will say, oh, it's just an illusion. You know, it's not worth anything. Whereas the more open-minded people will say, this is very, very interesting. Where the hell does this come from? You know, where is this epistemology? You know, what's what's going on here? Because, and it doesn't require, I mean, we talk about the shamanic, you know, and then we have this thing where you have the shaman's drum, you have the drum beat, which is sort of emulating the heartbeat. And you travel on that, on the rhythm and on the frequency that drum generates. And it could be other things making those rhythmic sounds also, and even singing the human voice. It's all about vibration that you sort of, and I put this in quotes now, that you travel on or travel through. And that's like, you know, archaic human knowledge as far back as, you know, we can say, you know, chronicle time, meaning in terms of remnants of in archeological finds and also in certain indigenous cultures that still exist in sort of unbroken lines of behavior. This shamanic approach to finding out information is still there. It's still integrated. It's not a new thing. It didn't sort of pop up in the 60s or in the 80s. It's been here as the most central thing that people have done to acquire information that is not merely central in the immediate moment. So that, I would say, it's the source. And the source, you know, Jung could say that we had a collective unconscious, meaning that, you know, similar things appeared in different, you know, geographies, different parts of the world at about the same time, as if something were going on. And those religiously inclined would say, oh, it's God, or it's the gods, you know, or those, but, you know, I stick with a psychological model. And I would say that it probably has to do with, you know, how to survive in new ways beyond the most primitive tools, 
you have to have a language to communicate with other people and possibly make peace with other tribes instead of bashing them in the head or being bashed on your head and things like that. So these developments that have happened with Homo sapiens includes this kind of proto-experience, which is leaving the rational, going into a mind-expanded state of mind through hallucinogenics or simply through drumming or dancing or singing. All of these ways are possible. You can even achieve it by simply meditating. It doesn't need, it doesn't require anything, you know, rhythmic. It's just a matter of you going into that space. And it's super, super simple and it's super cheap because it costs nothing. And I think in part, that's why people have not validated it because we have learned that, you know, a thing is only worth as much as anyone is willing to pay for it. You know, we live in a sort of a, a pecuniary mind frame where even absolute bullshit that is expensive will be looked upon as valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, in fact, these things, these techniques, these sort of mind expanding or sort of internal meditations, whatever you want to call it, they're so easy. They're, they're completely free and they are completely revelatory. They can reveal a lot of things about yourself. And there's a whole world in there. (laughs) Uh, That's basically the source that everything comes from. Mm. Because I think I give that example in the book also, that the actual basis of empiricism, I mean, we're very used to, when we think science, we think about a method that's called the empirical method, which I sometimes call faith in statistics. It's almost like a religious adherence to statistics. However, all of that, you know, left brain, rational, clinical, analytical, the fundament of that, the foundation of that is speculation, wild, crazy, magical thinking speculation, where someone comes up with the idea, oh, what if, dot, 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 you know, what if we mix and match this thing? And many times it will fail, but in some, some, you know, few cases it will be successful. And then you have a new scientific breakthrough proven by the method, of empiricism, but it still comes from the mind going wild in creativity and tossing, you know, crazy ideas back and forth. So whichever facet we, we or whichever goggles we, we wear in, in looking at these things, there's always magic there. There's always the source. And it is, as you say, shamanic. It's a very good word because I don't think there's a magic, as we said before, it's a kind of a a vague word with many meanings for different people, whereas the shamanic basically means traveling inside, getting information, coming back and dealing with the information in the best possible way. And I think it's part of our survival instinct, Mm -hmm. nothing more, nothing less. It's just a part and parcel of the same, you know, we think of fight and flight. That's a very physical immediate response, right? But also we survive by learning things quickly in new ways you know, assessing the situation and processing that kind of, of information also. Right. There's a lot there to unpack, I think. Indeed. (laughs) I appreciate everything that you just said. And one of the things that I've been doing is, you know, I teach religious studies and philosophy, and I always claim that the source for all of our religions is what we're calling the shamanic. And Mm -hmm. this attempt to alter human consciousness. I know, you know, the great historian of religion, Mircea Iliada, mm-hmm. he defined the shaman as a master of ecstasy. Yeah. And as I've been pursuing that line, 
you, you see it everywhere. You see it in all the world's religious traditions, although it's a little bit more hidden in the Abrahamic traditions. But yes, it's yeah. there, I think, if you look, uh, yeah. you can definitely find it. But what was fascinating to me is starting to discover the shamanic and the history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to me that this has been repressed in some ways. And I, you know, I think that anytime you repress something, you can only repress it for so long and it's going to burst yeah. out. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So maybe it's bursting out in flowers. That's a good, <laughs> a good, good, good image there. But it just brings to mind the idea, you know, we are so focused on the rational and the rational mm. is important, but we also need the irrational Absolutely. in order to move forward. I think the, I think at one point you refer to it as irrational rationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it just you can see it in so many different fields in general human culture. And I don't only mean Western culture, it's just right, like right. ingrained in every culture. You know, you, you cannot simply be rational. There, there will be things, inexplicable processes that make certain people artists mm-hmm. who are just, you know, have the vocation, or again, maybe it's a pathology, I don't know, of creating something with you know the usual creative means mainly expressing something and maybe it's a neurotic process he or she wants to explain you know express herself or himself but it could also be like a funnel thing they don't know what it is they just feel they have to do it in a way Mm. and then other people have incredible skill with numbers you know mathematical skill and and that kind of you know spatial skills we really there's a whole, whole range full spectrum of human qualities in different people, right? But this shamanic approach can be applied in every field. That's the thing. And that is a little bit, I won't say dangerous, but it can be hampering to mm-hmm. talk about the shamanic because the first image that people get will be some indigenous person with a drum, you know, right, and right. then, you know, and 10, 20 Western acolytes lying there right. and traveling, you know, but that's fine too. But it's, it's you know, insert for a better, more generic term, it's basically going into the inside, deeper levels, nothing dramatic, no extra things are needed to trigger it. It's just, you know, trusting the process in a way. And we know from, uh, you know, science and many things where uh, people have gone into a methodical usage of the hypnagogic and the hypnopompic states, for instance, in trying to figure out scientific problems, whether it's been, you know, electrical processes or the guy who developed or benzene, you know, many, many, many sort of scientific, which are typically left brain things, Mm. but they have used methods that are distinctly more open-minded and they come up with new ideas that they couldn't previously deduce. It wasn't a cogitation process. And those people have been great pioneers, of course, because they have been more open-minded. And then you have the same processes within finance, people who come up with new ways of, of doing things, basically. And I think maybe inherently it has to do with the new, creating something new. But, you know, it doesn't always have to be dramatic. You can also, you can also come up with something new simply by carefully treading on something old. It doesn't need to be like a quantum leap into something new. However, that's also an aspect. That kind of, let's call it speculative science, I think mainly in physics, 
you know, I don't claim to understand Einstein's theory of relativity. And that's like old school. That was over 100 years ago. Today, I'm sure these people are somewhere completely different. And, and we will never really understand. But we understand enough to say that this is important work that they're doing, whatever it is they're doing. And I'm sure all of their work is not pure cogitation. It is taking the concept of random, for instance, and the concept of invisible processes. Like when you talk about that, or if we had talked about this, you know, hundreds of years ago, we would have been, you know, heretical, like trying to describe the process right now, where you are on your continent and I'm here and it's real time so-called we're talking and there's no cord there's no telephone it's like <laughs> you know it purely it's real magic in a way if you use that older kind of way of looking at it and I'm sure there are a lot of things in, in the, the natural sciences we don't have an idea of how it works perhaps the scientists don't know but still they're working with it and finding new things out that are actually applicable somehow in in our human culture so there's really no field that escapes this kind of magic meaning that there is a source to which you can connect and get information for the field that you're working in and again, I, I would say that it's, it's so ingrained. It's not something extra. It's not something outside of us. It's not a concept. It's just an inherent part of our minds and, again, of our survival instincts. The reason why we have this is to make f better decisions faster. Hmm. Yeah. I, I do want to say, though, that we're still heretical, Carl. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, because I think that the dominant culture, and maybe there's a better way of expressing that, but for right now, I'll just say the dominant culture still doesn't necessarily want individuals going within and exploring or using their imaginations. You know, I've often complained that it feels to me quite frequently that my imagination has been colonized. Yeah. You know, that the dominant culture is, you know, set its flags up and like, no, this is how you're going to imagine things. Mm -hmm. And you do address this quite a bit in the book. You know, there is this underlying thread of criticism against the dominant culture, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really necessary. Mm. And it seems to me that a lot of the people that you write about, and I want to get into a few of them, mm -hmm. especially Genesis P. Orridge. Mm -hmm. uh, I just watched your documentary last night. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, with the, and I'll just, you use the pronoun for he and him for Genesis. Mm -hmm. so yes, I'll... because I, I knew him for, I've known him for such a long time when he right. was distinctly a he. So it's right. hard to change. <laughs> right, right. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll use the same. Uh, yeah. But there was the uh, video of him reading just some of the poetry. I think mm -hmm. it was called Write Your Own Code, which yeah. I absolutely loved. And I see, you know, Genesis as a shamanic figure. And yeah. another figure that comes in, William S. Burroughs. Yeah. And I think that maybe just to focus myself here. I want to start with Burroughs and you don't write specific, you know, you know there's not a whole essay on Burroughs, but he kind of mm. runs through. Yeah. And mm -hmm. especially with the idea of the cut-ups mm -hmm. and I see that also as a kind of shamanic activity. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's, it's very, very good examples that you're bringing out. I mean, they're very dominant in my thinking and in my writing in general, I'm sure there'll be even more of that. But the thing is that if you, we stay with this thread of uh, heresy in a way, Burroughs, yeah. of course, was big on the concept of control yeah. and saying that it's, it's not, you know, it's not one corporation or it's not one government or one council yeah. that is super evil, like in some James Bond notion yeah. that's called control. Control is something much more nasty and, and all permeating because it includes not only censorship, but also self-censorship, right? You know, yeah. you, you can apply via culture effect and create a culture of, I don't know, self-loathing in a way or, or low self-esteem that makes people good consumers. And, mm. and, you know, it's pretty basic. And I think what Jen did in a kind of, you know, lineage, he applied the cut-ups, which was a technique that uh, they didn't in invent it, but Burroughs and his friend Brian Geisen sort of reformulated it and experimented with it in, in a lot of ways. And Jen sort of took that on and applied it to more ways than just using text. You know, mm -hmm. Barros was a writer and Geisen was a fanciful psychedelic painter in a way. But, but Jen applied it on music te technology and, and video, of course, and many different fields uh, with this in the same spirit and also with the same attitude towards this vague yet very draconian force called control. Today, it is a bizarre situation, I think, in which we, when I say we, then I do mean us in the specifically Western uh, cultural sphere, we have a lot of freedom. You know, we have a lot of capacity, a lot of means to express ourselves for instance, through the internet. And I, I still remember that, you know, classical meme should be in a museum of memes, probably, you know, in called from the first, you know, publicity drive for the film Alien, you know, mm -hmm. in cyberspace, uh, everyone can hear you scream, <laughs> but no one listens, something right. like that, you know, yeah. uh, and, and that's the problem, you know, because if you want to reach through this morass of noise <laughs> that exists on the internet, you know, then you have to you know, become a slave of it because you have to devote so much time or money if you have it to to pay for the people to to do it. These you know campaigns and being constantly present. It, it's like pure slavery under the umbrella of individual liberty and freedom of expression. Mm. So it's kind of a paradoxical situation. So I, I think that control is very intelligent and takes on new shapes. And a lot of it, I think we have real freedoms in the sense that no one is censoring us. However, we could algorithmically be drowned out in favor of beautiful young girls, you know, who dance a crazy dance and yeah, that yeah. would become a smash hit. And I can't blame them, but you know, <laughs> still it's, it's, um, it's a amorphous, you know, thing that changes with the culture it's in, but the mechanics are still there. And I think also, you know, not going into politics, but it's this kind of hyper division or diametrical polarity in a way that it, it's a part and parcel of the same thing. Because in reality, you know, politics is basically about, you know, street lamps, who screw, screws in the street lamps and who organizes the infrastructure and stuff like that. In the Amer American sense, it doesn't really matter which party is, is running the show. It's just a different level of, of corruption, it seems. Mm. But the country moves on anyway, as it always has. That said, 
there is a lot of anarchy going on. And, and there, I think people associate the word anarchy with, with something leftish, but I think the anarchy is as predominant on the right-hand side yeah, of is. the aisle too, using not logic, not persuasion, not solid arguments, you know, meaning these classical human ways of dealing with problem solving, but it's just creating more chaos. And that, that's concerning, that that's, should be a concern. And of course, it reflects also on European soil again with, with the war, having to do with an archaic mind frame from our neighbors uh, to the east. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just weird. And in this, in all of this, we have the technology that is anarchic also, which is a good thing because, you know, we can have a new kind of journalism in a way that can actually broadcast live from the battlefields and show horrendous things that might affect opinion, mm-hmm. you know, in a completely new way than what has happened before when everything was like we are me- big media companies with representatives. But I also write about that in, in one of the essays that about the aesthetics of media mm-hmm. so that we take for granted that something that is shot with a cell phone is real. You know, it carries the signals of, of not just a shaky aesthetic, but it's something real. Whereas, in fact, it's so easy to fake whatever with a cell phone. You just, you just need a hand to hold it in. And, and so technology offers a lot of avenues, but I'm not surprised that it also is completely, uh, what would be a good word, deluding. You know, it also offers the avenue of complete brainwashing, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I when I wrote my master's thesis, I actually focused on the internet and the computer revolution because it was still you and I were about the same age. Yeah, and you know we both remember what it was like before, <laughs> and yes. that that excitement you know at the very beginning. And I know that the internet and the first sort of online communities emerged out of the counterculture yeah. of the sixties and seventies. So there's a, a cultural aspect yes, to the inherent in the internet. And I know, and I think this is actually when I first came across Genesis's name and mm. their work, because there was in the early days of the internet, and we still have this somewhat, this idea that we can, play around with our identities mm-hmm. um that identity is something that's a little bit more fluid than what it yeah. used to and i know that there was also this idea that the internet was this almost like promethean theft of mm-hmm. fire and giving the power right. to people and I, and i was guilty of this of being caught up in all the excitement and this is going to change everything mm-hmm. and you know the early days of the internet what you know it was pretty wild you know um but now increasingly i feel like i don't see that so much i see a little bit more manipulation mm. by the owners You know, Mm -hmm. because I remember I could spend hours, you know, and you just kind of go through and, you know, hyperlink, hyperlink, hyperlink and Mm -hmm. end up in some really fascinating places. But now it's like everything's like, you know, okay, where you just go to Facebook and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Absolutely. So. No, but it, it's, I think it's um, part of uh, the overall structure that we live in. Mm-hmm. I was thinking while you were talking, I thought of this thing where piracy, you know, piracy has always been very interesting in cultures 
repressive cultures that are always been pirates or rebels in that sense. And the ultimate piracy some time ago was the the striking of a new mint, you know, mm-hmm. a mint of their own. And I'm thinking of these things, what do you call it, cryptocurrencies. It's mm-hmm. almost like the same thing. I'm not saying I'm in favor of it, but it's interesting mm-hmm. that when things become too rigid and something new is needed, it's either substantial and dangerous in the rebel mm-hmm. sense, or it's maybe a complete sidetracking thing to keep people from thinking about high inflation and, yeah. and being poor. You know, they go, oh, I'll just invest in some cryptocurrency instead. And, you know, it's kind of a, a cynical title too, you know, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. It's like signifying that it's not really real mm-hmm. because it isn't really real. Yet right. somehow some people have decided that it has value. It's just like creating a pirate flag and saying, this is part of our tribe, our nation. Mm-hmm. And initially it's just a decision but it can become a reality if people join up and, and, and join, you know, by the fire, join, join the flag. That said, I think also that, uh, let's see, with pirates. Yeah, that's it. I was thinking about sort of midway, not the first pioneering years, but then this thing came with file sharing. Mm. And you had the Napster and the music and sort of, it's piracy, you know, mm. like in when I grew up with cassettes, you know, it was like, home taping kills music. There were stickers right. in the record stores and you know stuff like that. But still, you made tapes. You didn't give a damn. You loved the music. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what drove the file sharing thing too. It wasn't the theft that was interesting. Mm-hmm. It was the sharing, right? Mm-hmm. And then what's happened then is that as the web itself has become more, I don't know, commodified in a way, compartmentalized, monetized, then you have companies like Spotify, for instance, who are probably you could say without being sued, actually stealing from musicians. They are the ones who are stealing because their dividends is so ridiculously low, whereas the the turnover in general is huge. And then, of course, they weave their magic so that it always shows a loss. But but it's a huge turnover of, of like billions, millions and billions. And that's interesting how the very same thing, you know, original love of music, you want to share the music, but then someone says, no, this is illegal. And then just a short time afterwards comes this new technological platform, which you pay for and to get a lot of music. But the artists who have made the music get almost nothing, you know. Right. So which is the more, you know, you know, where is the piracy more cynical? Right. Um, so I think that that's part of how technology sort of takes over. And of mm. course, we're now, you know, in the midst of, AI taking over completely. I mean, have these people not read science fiction? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like there seems to be a strong death drive in the tech culture, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. tech people. You know, it's everything from, from you know, um, Elon Musk showing, you know, not really balanced psyche there, you know, doing good stuff with the electrical cars and stuff. But then, of course, wanting to go to Mars again, hasn't he read science fiction? You know, I'm sure someone will be able to, to go to Mars, but I doubt strongly that it'll be him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, uh, there does seem to be this sort of death cult, especially with, in regards to the natural world, you know, and it's this idea, well, you know, the earth is in pretty bad condition right now. So, hey, let's just go to Mars. Mm. And it's like, well, why not just fix what we have? Yeah, no, it's total escapism. Totally. 
Yeah. And of course, it's a guy thing. When you when you're so rich, you can do anything. You know. Okay, so you have another billionaire who wants to go to space too. Well, I want to go to space yeah. too. Who has yeah. the biggest rocket? Yeah. It, it's infantile. However, they are unknowingly part of control because they their wealth and what they make money of out of is basically uh, creating a culture that is completely pacifying. Mm. You know, Amazon is wonderful. It's really good if you're a consumer. You know, mm-hmm. but on the on the um, it's also kind of killing mom and pop businesses. It's just like New York is a good indicator. Yeah. Where it used to be all mom and pop. It's now it's only chains mm-hmm. and expensive to boot. So uh, I don't know. And then, of course, the control used to be invisible. It didn't mm-hmm. like to show its face. You know, not even too draconian, not too many, you know, police or surveillance. I think maybe the CCTV thing that mm-hmm. happened pretty quickly too sort of took over from the brute physical force of, of monitoring people. And now people accept that and they actually feel unsafe if there isn't CCTV on mm-hmm. their street. Right. It's a weird warp there that people want to be monitored. And it's very much Orwell. Everything is George Orwell and also Huxley, Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two, two classics in that sense. Yeah. Prescient yeah. books. Yeah, yeah. Which I think I, I just have to say this, that at least my experience with people in the United States, they don't understand that Brave New World is not a good thing. Because yeah. people will constantly use Brave New World as yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, some yeah. utopia. And I'm like, uh, yeah. have you actually read the book? Because yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I reread it recently. It's a it's a fucking masterpiece. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was in the 30s. But of course, you had that then in um because you could see in the Soviet mentality before like the Third Reich of Germany, which was something else, you know. But but Soviet had that sort of regard for the individuals an ant you know turned Mm -hmm. everyone into ants right and of course the the people on top weren't ants you know they were living Mm -hmm. the good life but everyone else was just and i think the western you know capitalism in a way does the same thing Mm -hmm. but at least we have the illusion of safety and the illusion of liberty and i would say for those who are smart and sort of discriminate there is actual freedom also Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you and I can sit and, and, and speak like this and it will touch, hopefully, uh, some people mm-hmm. uh, who will be curious and in the ideas, whatever, and in the book, I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, so I think it could be worse, but that doesn't mean that those strains of draconian control aren't there. Right. Yeah. I, I think that the it's difficult in the sense of breaking free. There, see, it, it, it seems to me that it has to be this sort of courageous act. Because and, and and I think it has to be an act that is grounded in self-reflection in a way yes. and a negation of the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And I like there's a term that you used. I think it was in the chapter on Ernst uh, Jünger, and I've not mm-hmm. read Jünger, but the term was the anarch. Yeah, uh, not an anarchist, but yeah. the anarch. And this is someone who. They are the rebel. Mm-hmm. They resist well, absolutely. everything. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, he defines it really well. Of course, there there are other anarchs and other people who've defined it 
this thing of being an outsider of your own vocation or by, you know, and you know, thinking of, you know, Herman Hesse in a way and the Montaigne, the, the French nobleman in the 16th century, who just like, you know, watching everything. Uh, they don't really engage, you know, unless they have to. And then they keep their records, they keep their journals and process the information, you know, for themselves mainly, and then also for a small readership. And I think just the position, because you could also not write, you would still be an anarch just thinking about mm-hmm. these things. And the anarchist, on the, on the, excuse me, <clears throat> on the other hand, will always be attached to the power. Mm. will always be attached to the negative in an antithetical position but it will always be the weaker one because even if you manage to you know kill off someone or throw a bomb whatever you will be immediately killed yourself so what's Mm. the point whereas the anarch is just standing on the side and looking at the spectacle and you know drawing deductions from that you know pro or contra i think it's it's a wise position and I think that if you are, and this, you know, come into like East, Eastern philosophies here, like Taoism, if you're completely in the center of things, then everything else will be extreme. You know, mm-hmm. even the moderate <laughs> yeah, yeah, political yeah. movements are it's just like uh, they don't seem to get it that, you know, the, the sun is the center and, and you have to be the sun of your own life mm-hmm. uh, and sort of let everything else swirl around like, you know, electrons or planets, whatever. But uh, you, if you don't, if you aren't, then you will become an electron or planet in someone else's solar system. Yeah. It's just how it is. Yeah. Well, and that is a really good description of how I think most people feel, at least in the United States. Yeah. Is that, you know, we are, we are not our own centers mm-hmm. because, because of this system that we are trapped in. You know, yeah. The yeah. center is the industrial capitalist extractive economy and system mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, our corporate overlords. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult to break free from that. And, mm-hmm. and I agree that there is some freedom and I don't want to bash the internet completely because I do see a lot of incredible creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an amazing thing. But we do exist in this illusion of freedom. Mm. I always like to say, you know, being able to choose between 20 different brands of toothpaste does not mean free. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. No, but that that's exactly it. And I think, again, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at with, with um, the Source Magic uh, as a book. I mean, it, it's mm. uh, different chapters, different essays, slightly mm-hmm. different topics. But if there is a red thread, it is this sort of reverence for the individual and the individual's relationship to to the outer world or the collective or whatever we want to call it and i think specifically of the chapter about the prisoner the british tv series from the 60s which was such a fluke you know and i i I think it had to do with lsd that the producers and everything were turned on it was the right time the right you know space and culture to be able to produce something so radical about this former secret agent who, who resigns, but he's not allowed to resign. So he's placed in this, you know, it's called the village, which is basically jolly, colorful prison where everybody is smiling and happy and sort of completely, I don't know, living a lie. They're all prisoners there. And when they try to escape, it you know the draconian measures become violent mm-hmm. and then the 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 secret agent tries to co- cope with and understand what's going on but he's he's so adamant in his individuality and that's the beauty of the series is that mm-hmm. it's easy to become sedate and comfortable and live in a comfort zone where you have everything and those options are 
completely available to us because that's best for control. Mm-hmm. However, if you want to be divergent in any way, just like being your own person, then that becomes a problem. So that TV series is incredibly prescient also and, and many other things. And I think, again, you know, it, it, you don't need complex magical orders, systems, structures, religions, philosophies, just this thing of being true and honest to yourself. Mm. Look at yourself in the mirror, look at yourself in a photograph, what do you like, what you don't like, and then you have to change that because otherwise you'll find no meaning whatsoever. You have to sort of take those first trembling steps on the path or the quest, whatever, Mm. and, and be honest with what you're finding and the stuff that you don't like, you have to discard. And then you go for the attractive stuff because there's a reason why it attracts you. And I'm not talking about the commercialized bling. I'm talking about real deep psychological, emotional resonances that that are there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And when you start on that path, you are connecting to the source. Mm -hmm. And then you just go and find out more information. And it's really, in theory, it's very, very simple. But in practice, it can be very, very difficult. And that's why so few people do it, because they prefer the immediate comfort of the comfort zone. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. And something I've been thinking about, which I think is pertinent here, is that I think that humans, by nature, we are creators. Mm -hmm. And when we... I think we give over our creativity to the comfort often yes, Um, and that what is required is this sort of radical creativity, which I see as a reclamation of power of our own individual power. But if we're going to connect that to that source, it seems to me that another primary element to that would be a sense of awe. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just don't know how often people feel awe anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I guess uh, those are the moments when you come across that, you know, by chance or by exposing yourself to some kind of culture that you suspect will give you that. Then that's when people say, oh, that's so magical. Yeah. Did you yeah. feel that? That was so magical. That there's simply no better word to express mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're looking for. Right. But it's interesting that that's the word that people use. You know, right. I guess, you know, in some cultures, subcultures, you say, oh, that was such a mind blower, you yeah. know, such, you know, because they are the stoners. They will use mm. that kind of, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, I think the need is there and the more, you know, I don't know, the heavier the comfort zone, the harder it is to break free from it. And, and, you know, people will say, well, why would I? I'm fine here. But there's no sense of adventure. There's no sense of development. There's no sense of anything new. And in general, even though people live longer, etc., it is an inertia. It mm. is a kind of death mm. because you know there's no 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 back and forth friction life. You know there's no mm. rhythm right to it. It's sedentary lifestyle. Right. Right. Well, I, yeah, I have a couple of things I want to say, but and <laughs> my concerns will get off track, but that's okay. Yeah. I do want to talk about death a little bit, but the first thing I wanted to comment on is in terms of that individual agency, one of the things that came to mind when you were speaking is that there's a necessity, I think, to 
what you know Timothy Leary used to say, find the others. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the wonderful things about the internet is it can yes. help us find the others. And that's mm-hmm. something you certainly did uh, in, in, in your life's journey. You know, you found Genesis and reached out to Genesis mm-hmm. and, and Anton LaVey and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's interesting, you know, I don't know how often people will continue to do that or to even take the initiative you know it's sometimes it's difficult because especially if you're on the margins you know it depends i suppose on where you are you know some places mm-hmm. you know like san francisco they're like you know let your freak flag fly <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's easier i think maybe to find your community but that's something that's really difficult is the ability to find the community so that you can be authentically you yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, uh, the internet appears to have a lot of signal, and it does, but it also have had, you know, there's an insane amount of of noise, mm-hmm. you know, because there are so many, di- you know, what do you call it, diversions. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking for one thing, but you get sidetracked immediately because there's bling here or something blinking there, and and you believe that you're orienting yourself, but you're actually disorienting yourself. Mm-hmm. And I remember it's it's this is interesting that this comes up because. Right now, I'm wrapping up the manuscript for the next book, which will be kind of a magical autobiography hmm. um, about sort of people I've met and the the path I've been on. Also, in the hope that it'll inspire people to see that it's pretty simple, simple processes. Hmm. You sometimes you need a lot of courage, hmm. but basically, what happened was that I empowered myself, and I like to write, like to take pictures, and we're talking about me as a teenager now. And I love to, you know, indulge in certain culture as you do, weird rock and roll, trashy movies, all that stuff. So I created my own fanzine. Mm. And in that uh, scene, which was basically like very rock and rollish, it was a great scene even in Stockholm where I lived. And I decided I just want to interview these people and take pictures mm. of them. And I just like set my mind to it and bam, did it. And, and that was good, you know, from major press conferences to small underground clubs. It really wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of being focused and doing it. And, you know, people got to, you know, learned that, okay, here comes that fanzine kit, let him in yeah. or, or not. But at least I tried to, to the greatest extent possible. And that became a thing. And of course, it empowered me. So when it became time to drift from this trashy subculture into the art culture, you know, going to England and, and meeting Genesis. And then sort of one thing led to another, my engagement in sort of in the Temple of Psychic Youth led to, you know, contacts with many people, Kenneth Anger and Anton LaVey. And so very early on, I was completely living a dream. It was like mm-hmm. a dreamlike scenario where all of these people that I had looked up to in a way where that had inspired me so much, suddenly I was there drinking coffee with them mm-hmm. and they were curious about what I was doing. That was really magical in the, in the literal yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's never really left me either. I've just been going on the same with the same mind frame that, that uh, and, uh, you know, I basically ran out of magicians yeah. <laughs> with an ad return, return to the artists yeah. with this documentary film series. Right. But, but still, it's the same kind of process where I'm fascinated by certain people and they inspire me. And then I want to meet them, of course, and see what they're about. And then I want to 
do something with them, write about them or make a film about them and, and just present it to people so that they can be inspired also. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my shtick in a way. And mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I just, you know, it's been a, a constant MO in, mm-hmm. in my life to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit envious to be honest. I mean, it's, you know, I remember being young. I, I, I can still remember being young. <laughs> Um, That's good. You know, but I remember being like 19 or 20 and feeling this like fire and wanting to find my group. I guess now people, you know, I guess it's a little problematic, but you know, your tribe, you you want to find your people. Right. Yeah. And I think that the model that I was always running on in the background were like the beats, Mm -hmm. but and I guess a few others, you know, you can find examples from the sixties and whatnot, but you know, there's this issue of, and I'm going to place it here in American culture of access because, you know, I grew up in a, I always refer to it as a pothole pothole in Southwest Ohio, where Mm -hmm. you just don't have access to a Mm -hmm. lot of things and you have to go out yeah. and find some place to get more and more access. And I am so grateful that I'm in a position now that I actually get to speak with people and talk mm-hmm. to them and talk to authors, but it was a long journey. You know, it mm. took a long time to get here, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, and maybe with the internet, um, people can do that a little bit easier mm. than what they could uh, when I was younger. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think again that's interesting because I'm thinking exactly what we're doing now. You know what's called a podcast. Yeah. It, it's basically amateur radio in a way. Yeah. We're making yeah. radio shows, you know, but it's called the podcast, and that's fine. And I mean, there are so many podcasts. It's incredible. Yeah. It became like a a, a revolution in a way. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, you have again the same problem that the internet always has. There is so much, mm-hmm. you know, if you're yeah. interested in one thing, even the, you know, the most narrow, highbrow example of any sort of culture, it's like 20 different podcasts about it. Yeah, yeah. Then, of course, then you, 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 you're, you lose yourself to finding that out and listening to that. Da, 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 da. So it becomes like, what do you call it? Like, you know, a quagmire in a way mm-hmm. with good intentions. Right, you know, right. it's going to be really interesting stuff. But instead of, you know, doing something that you want to do, like, pro-creative in a way, mm. uh, then you you passively take part of stuff that mm. continues to inspire you. But mm. and that that can be good, you know, and good enough, but you also need to sort of funnel it through yourself and mm-hmm. make something with the inspiration. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where most people lose it in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, because it's so easy and so cheap to take part of inspiration. Mm. You know, books are cheap, the internet is, you know, is uh, invasive i was going to say it's it it exists and it sort of takes over so easily and the same thing with you don't even have to go to a cinema you could just Mm. watch streaming binge watch that's an interesting term you know Uh, binging i associate with drinking alcoholics you know binging so you binge watch something that you would never go to the cinema and watch like 14 hours worth of some yapping people back and forth (laughs) you know it's like it is narcotic Mm mm-hmm it, it's sedative, sedative. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there's incredible creativity again, and this is something that I've thought about. And I'll take it back to the awe because I will often ask my students, and this is the very first class, especially in religious studies, when I'm trying to unpack what religion is, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not an easy term. 
And I, I will often connect it to this sense of awe. And mm-hmm. uh, I will ask them, when is the last time you felt a sense of awe? Mm-hmm. Now, overwhelmingly, they're going to say that they felt it in nature. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I get that. That's where I do, you know, mm-hmm. put me out in the canyon and I start communing right away. Yeah, yeah. But every now and then a student will say, oh, well, you know, it was the last, you know, Marvel movie that I saw. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this initial, no, you're not going to get a sense of awe just by watching the Avengers. But then I go back to nine-year-old Nick saying Star mm-hmm. Wars in the movie yeah. theater and yeah, yeah, yeah. that very first scene. And it was a sense of awe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are absolutely things for new generations that you and I can't relate to. Right, right. And we can argue and, and say that, you know, oh, it's just so bland, so diluted, so commercialized. Mm-hmm. But still, I think there's a reason why these things are so in- insanely popular. Yeah. E- yeah. Even, you know, even Fast and Furious, mm-hmm. these, these, you know, incredible franchise. I think it has some kind of very primitive yet mythic potential in there otherwise it wouldn't be so successful and whatever it is i haven't seen those films but with marvel you know i remember buying the marvel comics you know Mm -hmm. thor and all these people and it's it's basically all you know god fairy tales like from the scandinavian pantheon Mm -hmm. from the you know roman or greco greek pantheons basically uh, mythic stories that gradually become more and more diluted and Mm -hmm. our culture in general and our cultural sensibility is completely diluted Unfortunately, that's why the entertainment must be diluted for people to understand it. Mm. So it's it's a kind of a cross fertilization between supply and demand in a way. Yeah. And it's 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 pretty bad, but for that generation, it will probably create a sense of awe. Yeah. Because it's also so I don't know, it's so technologically savvy in the creation of an illusion, mm. much more so than people with super eight cameras shooting a, a movie in the 1960s you know right, right, right. so you can cgi every, anything i mean i wonder if it if this kind of insanely uh, skillful illusion making isn't going to affect our dreams adversely you know i think it's going to sort of you know because we get that while watching again binging something for 10 hours yeah. and then you know how can dreams compete right with that it's just like they're building incredible worlds that mm. are believable Mm. yeah well and i like that there's this aspect of the mythic to it and this is one of the quotes i have from your book if myths aren't necessary to our survival they simply wouldn't exist let alone feel so resoundingly relevant Mm. anything of mythic value is directly connected to the shamanic source and hence to our survival Mm -hmm. but i wonder the mythic it seems to me that it's something that's going to i don't know i i'm kind of thinking out loud here mm. but i kind of want to see the mythic emerging from the base rather than mm-hmm. being imposed upon people yes yeah i think originally uh, it's probably safe to say as it's called that it was basically uh, cautionary tales mm. like you know parents telling their kids to you know don't go out into the forest but if you tell that to a kid they will go into the forest or maybe a young a teenager or whatever but if you tell a tale that has symbols that has you know gods that has larger than life protagonists and there is a moral 
involved, then they will listen and you learn by default in a way. Mm -hmm. You learn by the proxy of fiction, mm. which is very, very, very interesting. And I think it's it's exactly the same today. You know, mm. unfortunately, there is this thing where the the people who make the the content, as it's called, basically movies, TV series, franchises, whatever, there's always inherently a moral in there. And however, it's not like it used to be, it's the end that carries the morality. You know, the hero gets the girl and they kiss and it's a happy ending, you know. But today it's more like it's a display of morality in the display of lifestyle. You know, it's what, what the, the protagonists consume, it's how they talk, it's many, many things that are all, you know, carrying signal. And kids who don't have any wider sense, of, you know, of reference, maybe they don't come from a home where you talk about these things or a school that even gives a damn, then of course, they will see these things as instructions. Again, again, by the proxy of fiction, they know it's fiction, but they emulate it to the point that they become the carriers of that reality mm. or possibly failed in, in doing so. But then it doesn't matter because they were already bought into the concept, perhaps even quite literally buying things that the stars or protagonists wear or do or drive. You know, so it's a lifestyle thing. Whereas I think the original myths up until fairly recently, I think, was basically about don't do this, do this, mm. because that's what the gods do. So it's mm. basically mommy and daddy telling the kids what to do, but with the language of a rich pantheon or natural forces or whatever it is, depending on which culture it is. So again, there you have the original use of fiction. That's why it's so still so incredibly powerful. It might actually be more powerful today. Again, what I write about this thing, the aesthetics of the media, you know, where you have a cell phone footage signifying reality and a, sl a sleek CGI'd, you know, major production signifies fiction. But in actual fact, it, they might be completely reversible. Mm. Yeah. And that's something I've been thinking about quite a bit in terms of the distinction between fact and fiction or truth and untruth because mm -hmm. of the media environment that we are in as you're speaking to that mm -hmm. it seems to me that maybe i don't know if most people recognize this but it seems like we are in the midst of an epistemological crisis Mm -hmm. And I can see that definitely in the United States, mm -hmm. um, especially within our polit our politics, Yeah, that it's very difficult to determine what is true and what is false. And mm -hmm. so what happens is I think a lot of folks just kind of throw up their hands and just rely on identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. But then again, we all know that identity is e extremely malleable in a mm -hmm. culture where fiction is the dominant instructor. Mm -hmm. It's no longer the schools. It's no longer like the, the safe structure of the family that has so-called family values that could also be negative and detrimental, of course. However, when people consume more fiction than so-called fact, then that will be the arena that teaches them how to do and how to you know, react and what to think, and most importantly, what to consume. But there's also this aspect where I almost lost my thread there. 
interesting because I was going to say something inherently dangerous. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> my, my, my self censorship had to do with that actually, with self censorship and censorship. Anyway, maybe it'll return. Maybe it'll return. It is interesting though that I don't know. It's it's also quantity over quality, right. and it's alarming. I mean, I do that too. I get stuck by the TV mm-hmm. and watch something because it's interesting enough, and then you almost feel remorse if you say. I'm not going to watch this anymore and you turn it off. And yet the day after you're there again, right. you know, like I want to yeah. see what it ends like, you know, yeah. and, and it's, it's a depressing, mm-hmm. you know, I love movies. I love TV, mm-hmm. but, but it's still the, the quantity, the amount of products out there is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me personally, I think the key is to just limit myself. And, yeah. you know, I think that often what happens is it is such a driving force in cultural conversations, you know, oh, did you watch this? Did you watch this? Mm-hmm. You know, they always call it, you know, the water cooler sort of yeah. uh, TV shows. And, you know, I'll watch some things here and there, but I, I pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm always trying to be very careful about what I let in to my consciousness. Yes. And, uh, you know, so I avoid the reality shows, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I always find quite ironic since there's really nothing that real. No, and I mean, it's, it's Circus <laughs> it's, it's circus Maximus, you know, it's yeah, the, yeah. the Roman Empire, bread, bread and circus, and, and the people, you know, growing to hate each other. It's Lord yeah. of the Flies all over. Yeah. And it's depressing. I mean, it's and also it's the same. How can people watch that and not get tired of the format? Because yeah. the script is all almost the same, yeah. whatever it is. You know, there can only be one winner. You know, and it's like it's so generic, yeah. and and that is also depressing to me. Because at least you could have a kind of a new format, yeah. challenge yeah. people a little bit. But then, of course, it's not about challenging people. It's about right. keeping them, you know, completely sedated. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, this sort of sedation, um, there seems to be, I'm trying to find the quote here. I may not be Mm -hmm. able to find it, that it is, we are kept sedated so that we don't think too much about our own mortality. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that is such an important thing. And that's why I have it in the book. And it's like the end of the book so that you sort of drift out of the book with that in mind. Again, you know, in life, realize that you have the source magic within, go inside and whatever it is that you find, you have to take seriously, validate, value, and use it as fodder on your path, you know, that's life. And, you know, life is short because there is something called the end it's the death and when you you know throughout life you will confront death you know in our culture it's usually you know it could be at the hospital someone has died and you go there and say bye-bye or or you know if they die of so-called natural causes and for some people it could be a violent thing with an accident still you know you get exposed to death either firsthand or secondhand and it's something that that our culture is very good at compartmentalizing away mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that's very unhealthy and and i've certainly given death a lot of thought and i write in that piece called memento mori about yeah simply being aware that death is absolutely the the finality and if you want to speculate religiously and say oh there's something called reincarnation or i will go to heaven or i will go to hell you know it's pure speculation we can't know until we're there right, right. so i think it's healthier and better to say that it's just a definite 
end. And that will motivate myself to live life to the fullest. Yeah. Uh, every day, don't waste a single moment. Just carry on enjoying life. You know, enjoy the senses, enjoy the learning, enjoy the path, enjoy each other, you know, because um, someday it's going to end. And, you know, as you said, we're probably the same age. I'm 57 mm. and I feel fine, you know, healthy. Mm. I can feel, you know, the joints you know, yeah. creaking a little bit, you know. So, okay, I can see it coming. I hope it's going to be a yeah. slow process. <laughs> right, right. But still, I'm going to grow old and I'm going to die. But until then, I'm just going to have a grand old time writing yeah. books about magic anthropology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea. Well, the Memento Mori, there's also in uh, Carlos Castaneda, I think it's in Journey mm -hmm. to Exlon, yeah. where he talks about having death as your ally. Yes, um, of course. And yeah. that's something that I've done is, you can't see it, but in the hutch behind me, I mm -hmm. bought a skull. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a dragon stone or dragon blood skull. And then there's like a little plastic skeleton, uh, but mm -hmm. I keep them there as a constant yeah, no, that's reminder. Good. Yeah, you know, perfect. That I am going to die. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's so easy to just not even really acknowledge it even when you have experienced loved ones passing away mm -hmm. that's them mm -hmm. you know that's them yeah and that's one of the things that keeps me away from television and and You're movie right. is yeah. that is this a good use of the time that i have left Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. I can categorically say no. <laughs> the only thing that it's good for in that sense is a bit of relaxation when you're simply mm -hmm. too tired to yeah, do something yeah. else. Yeah. Then it could be, you know, instead of getting into the rigmarole of doing a serious meditation, you could just zonk out in front yeah. of the TV. I yeah. do it several times a week and it's, yeah. it's pretty good. But yeah. then again, it has a tendency to be so good that yeah. it takes over and right, you right. find yourself there many hours later yeah. when in fact yeah. you should be asleep and dream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that there's value to, again, the moral of the story. You know, mm -hmm. when we watch these things that, you know, it's not always, I mean, reality TV, there's no moral to that, I don't think, other than be a good consumer and equating the good life with beauty and wealth and things like that. Yeah. But celebrity. Yeah. yeah. But I think that with fictional stories we do we can examine values and think in terms of what it means to be a human and what it means mm. to be in this world mm. in ways that we can't always do in our own lives I, for me the issue is always the excess of you know that if that's all that someone does is mm -hmm. you know get home from you know hard day at work and then just turn off by yep. turning on the tv you know I think that's where the danger is. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not on that note. I don't want to be like, you know, a moralist saying people yeah. have to do something. Right. But I think it's just pointers mm. uh, trying to tell people, you know, in this book and in general that it's much easier than you think yeah. to just look inside and open up and see, say, no drugs needed, not even a shamanic drum, nothing. Just, you know, focus on yourself and go inside and feel how you feel and see what kind of information flows out, mm -hmm. you know, and take that seriously. It's a very, yeah. very simple message. And yeah. again, it's, it's precious and it's really a rich message and yet it costs nothing no right. adherence nothing there's there's no group to join you don't get a funny hat you know it's, it's this just very very basic human 
uh, attitudes and approaches. And I, I'm very happy I chose that to walk on my path mm. early on. And I've met many beautiful people who've done the same. And they've inspired me and I hope the other way around also. And it's just uh, a very simple message. Yeah. Well, it's an old message too. I mean, I'm yeah. actually writing something right now on Socrates and living an examined life. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's amazing also because it shows that culture is the only thing that remains, right? And mm-hmm. I'm not only talking about Greek architecture from a long time ago or or some archaeological remains, but it's also this thing where people wrote things down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're still talking about Socrates today. That's yeah. pretty amazing. And mm-hmm. and again, I think that's why, um, you know, uh, what's going on now, what I call the occulture, and this occulturation process where things are coming from out of the soil and budding, mm-hmm. it has to do with the fact that we need to reassess our way of looking at life because our planet it's in dire straits for us the planet will be fine you know but we unfortunately we're killing off a lot of uh you know biospheres and a lot of species and stuff like that and i think i believe that it needs to be a general awakening but there will never be a general awakening unless the individuals are awoken you know, right. it needs to be on an individual level because there won't be some, you know, UFO coming, spraying everybody with LSD saying shape up earthlings. Right, right. You know, it will just have to be a rude awakening for people who, who uh, come to the realization that, well, you know, really memento mori. We're at yeah. dire straits here and we need to figure this out. And hopefully you can, you know, find as many others as you can, mm-hmm. you know, make some kind of, you know, significant change. I have my doubts, although, you know, there are things going on. You, we'll, we'll see. It's exciting yeah. times, yeah. you know. But then again, all cultures have dwindled. All empires have fallen. We have had extinctions before. It's not a big deal. You know, it's mm. a beautiful planet. The planet will be beautiful in the future, too, whether mm. there are humans or not. You know, so yeah. in that sense, there's comfort, but it's also highly depressing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and we could go off on a whole other tangent here, but I know that we're starting to run out of time. But the one thing I'll say in response to what you just said is at one point in the book, you had mentioned something that what we're going to need or what is needed is a kind of a merging of myth and science. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not, and I'll ask you this, you know, cause I'm also thinking in terms of the cutups and Genesis and Lady J yeah. that you had the two that give rise to a third and maybe mm-hmm. that's what is yes. going to have yeah, to happen. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good, good uh, way of looking at it. You know, Barros and Geisen came up with this thing, the third mind mm-hmm. where two people talking, you know, create a third spirit or, or a third mind simply and it can be also on a basic psycholo- psychological level you know in conversation you come up with things that you wouldn't otherwise come up with you know and that's mm-hmm. why you have creative teams in mm-hmm. companies for instance just sit and you know they call brainstorm that's a good mm-hmm. word let it brainstorm and see what comes up and i think that that uh, i i don't know if i can see it happening but i do think that it's necessary mm-hmm. that different environments start to communicate with each other to yeah. see what can be um, brought forth because as long as everybody's there with their blinders on just making turning a profit then nothing good is going to come out of it you know yeah. and i think it's very interesting although depressing also that during the pandemic which was a global thing people actually did travel less 
because mm-hmm. it was required, right? And and there was a new way of thinking, uh, basically coming from someone talking about kind of an invisible enemy, of course, tangible for those who became infected and, and you know, died also, uh, and their families, but still with something like literally in the air that mm-hmm. made us change perceptions and behaviors. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting because... It was a you know big pandemic. I think one million people died in the U.S. alone, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 so that's a real thing. But at the same time, you know, why is it that we, under normal, healthy, happy circumstances, can't change our behaviors? Right, right. It's 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 like pathetic, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I don't know. I during the pandemic, I remember you know because I'm in Southern California in Pasadena, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And I remember in the early days of the pandemic, I went out walking once and the air was clean. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. California, I, can you yeah, imagine? Yeah. Well, in Los Angeles. And in yeah. fact, I remember reading an article that said that it was some of the cleanest air in the nation at the time. Wow. And it was quiet. And I remember thinking, you know, the pandemic kind of sucks, but I could get used to this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember about a year later or so, there was a thunderstorm and I'm my grandfather's grandson. So as soon as I hear thunder, I have to go into the front porch uh, mm-hmm. and see what's going on. And it wasn't a big storm or anything, but I just sat out there for a little bit listening and I could hear the sounds of the traffic on the freeway. It had mm. returned yeah. and I could hear cars everywhere. And I thought, you know, And I looked over and I could see pollution coming up from Mm -hmm. where the freeway was. And I thought, you know, we missed our chance. Yeah. I think Gaia was shooting a final warning shot at us. And we were Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, we want to go back to this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, totally. That that's unfortunate, but it was interesting to experience that change is absolutely possible. And I think, you know, maybe the straits have to be even dire yeah. Uh, but then again, then it might be too late. There's always yeah. the tipping point. There's always yeah. the critical mass point. Yeah. And, and after that, it's like enforced inertia forever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think, and this will, we can kind of end on this, but going back to this idea of the myth and the science, I actually do see that happening some in ecology because mm-hmm. uh, ecologists are speaking to, especially within indigenous communities, mm-hmm. their myths. And Mm -hmm. they are going back to that point that myths hold information Mm -hmm. um, and they hold information about humanity living well within an environment. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I'm hoping that we will see this sort of new science coming out. That is that merger of myth and science Mm -hmm. uh, through Mm -hmm. ecology. Yeah, yeah, no, I hope so also, absolutely. And also in more environments getting sure. together. It's it's yeah. a part of a future that is possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a good note, whole futures, a good note to end on. Because I know it's getting late where you are. And Carl, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with me. I enjoyed this. I could speak with you for a lot longer. Uh, I know time <laughs> yeah. is limited and right. I don't want to bore the listeners, yeah. uh, but... Well, thank you very much. It, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, before you know it, I'll be back again. Good, good. Yeah. We'll look forward to that, definitely. Yeah. And that's a wrap on episode 80 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. 
If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video descriptions. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be incredibly, tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, coworkers, anyone that you think will enjoy it. And please share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.